Well, this morning we're going to talk about depression. I, was, I woke up at 5 o'clock this morning, which is, on some accounts, a sign of depression. You know, early morning awakening. I don't know what has happened to me. I can only sleep six hours now. It's, it's like I, I go to bed and in six hours I wake up. It's just like clockwork. Don't need a, an alarm clock. The uh, average human being really needs eight hours. But I once listened to a psychiatrist and he said that you should sleep until you wake up without the benefit of an alarm clock. You know, if you wake up without an alarm clock, then you probably slept long enough. Um, But I woke up and I was reading uh, the most recent research uh, about depression. Um, There's a fellow who will remain unnamed because he's a brother in Christ, and I don't want to criticize brothers in Christ in public. But um, he reads research, but I, I don't know that he entirely understands it at times. And for the last 15 years or 20, he has promoted the uh, chemical imbalance theory of depression, which we'll talk about briefly, uh, which is now gone. If you do not know that, nobody who knows anything about research is telling anybody that uh, you get depressed today because of chemical imbalances. Um, The new um, theory is that it's a neurodegenerative disorder associated with inflammation. At least that's what I was reading this morning. And it, uh, the medicines are supposed to help grow more brain cells in your head. Now, the real problem with that theory is, of course, the same problem they had with the last theory. It is proving it in a living human being. You know, it's, it's, it's hard to access the, uh, or the site or the source of the information. Um, at any rate, I like to teach from uh, case studies. <clears throat> And we're going to do that this morning with, with, with depression. Um, I have to make it HIPAA compliant. In other words, without somebody's permission, I cannot tell their story unless I, I want to end up in an orange jumpsuit someplace or pay a $50,000 fine. I, I don't look good in orange, and I don't think I do well in prison. You know, short guys just doesn't work. Have you guys woke up yet? <laughs> when, when you do wake up, would you raise your hand so I'll know? It is a little early, and it is Saturday. You were supposed to be unconscious right now, weren't you? <laughs> so it's a, it's a great testimony to the fact that you persistently wish to know what I'm talking about. Anyway, so this, this case study is what I call a blended blender study. That's where I take two or three people, and I take their histories, and I pour them into a blender, and then I take what, you know, the, the amalgam and pour it into the mold, <laughs> which I wish to talk about, so that I'm not violating anybody's, anybody's rights. Um, Eve, the subject of the case study, was a 20-year-old white female, a Christian young woman, who was a student at a major Midwestern university located in Lafayette. I will not identify it any further. If you can't figure that out, then you don't know anything about the Big Ten. At any rate, she, she came and she had one question. She wanted to know if she had a disease. Um, and that disease was depression. Uh, she, uh, she encountered this problem for the first time in her life six months earlier when she was stricken with a, a significant and nearly fatal illness. Uh, in, in, a, in a moment, she went from being a, a healthy, happy young woman pursuing uh, a degree from, from that university to uh, someone who could barely breathe because she dropped a lung. Uh, ended up in the emergency room, survived that, uh, had, had a chest tube for a week, did well with that. 
uh, was well on her way to recovery, doing just fine uh, up to the day of discharge. And on the day of discharge, when she was getting her discharge instructions from the, um, the physician, um, she was even doing pretty well until he told her that, that this could happen again, that what happened to her could happen again. Uh, he couldn't tell her when, he couldn't tell her if, but he could tell her that if it did happen again, that it was possible that she could die. And she went from, from doing really well to being devastated all in about a couple of minutes. I, um, her response, you know, how did she respond to the, to the adverse outcome? Well, uh, this, she was a Christian young lady. She quit going to church. She quit uh, reading her Bible. She quit praying. Not, not uncommon things for people when they, when they have bad things happen to them. I, I don't know why it's the case. I've always said it's a, like watching a man on fire running away from the lake. You know, running from where help truly is. Uh, quit praying. Quit, uh, quit going to class. Quit doing her homework, which really didn't work very well for her at a major university. Uh, she quit cleaning her room and quit taking showers, um, much to the uh, dismay of her roommates. Quit going places with her friends. Lost interest in boys. And started regularly getting drunk. Never had been a drinker before. It actually, I don't think it was legal for her um, to do so. Uh, and, and she'd never really done it, even though she was at a university in which uh, uh, underaged and um, binge drinking was considered an intramural sport. That didn't work either, did it? <laughs> I should have a sign. That, that was a joke. You know, I, I, don't tell, I don't tell jokes. And the reason why I don't is because I can't. Uh, I, if, if, if I could, I'd be on late night television. And I always say that that's why I went to medical school. There was nothing else left for me to do in life. Anyway, she, um, <laughs> she, by the time I saw her, she had stopped drinking because she realized that if she kept drinking like she was, she wouldn't have to worry about dying of dropping another lung. She would <laughs> kill herself with booze. Um, Underneath all of this for her was a simmering anger. It started with, her problem started with fear, fear of dying, went to worry over loss, and she had lost many things. She'd lost a semester out of school. She'd lost hope, hope of finishing school, finding Mr. Wright, starting her career, marrying Mr. Wright, buying the house, buying the expensive car, and then having children. It was as if God and life had simply told her no. Her worry went on to hopelessness and gave way to anger. Anger, it's sometimes directed at God. And after a while, it gave way to bitterness. And as the psalmist said in Psalm 37, it, you know, do not fret. It only leads to evil doing. And so her bitterness led to rebellion and finally drunkenness and a sorry, sad mood question she had for me is, do I have a disease and can I get better? Well, I thought about it a moment and I smiled and said, you know, I think you can get completely better. In fact, I'm pretty certain you can, but you have to be willing to say one sentence. And I've told this to all kinds of people and you might want to write it down. It's a pretty good one because it is at the heart of what biblical counseling is. And it says, comes from 2 Corinthians 5.9. And I've told so many people I've told this so many places that one lady wrote me and asked me what translation of the Bible it was. My sentence, that is. 
And the sentence is, I want to glorify God with my life more than I want to breathe. Biblical counseling is goal-oriented. It is not problem-oriented. And the goal is not to feel better or not to be depressed. The goal is to glorify God. 2 Corinthians 5.9, Therefore also we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. I want to glorify God with my life more than I want to breathe. Well, what do we know about depression? Well, a lot of Americans describe themselves as depressed. I think one in four Americans will be taking some sort of psychiatric medicine currently, and that may be a slight underestimate. We know that depression can be very complicated because it gets used to describe all kinds of things. Those who are depressed often speak of darkness, numbness, and worthlessness as their constant companions. Actually, I think that applies to like the 10% of the very severely depressed. I don't think it applies to the other 90%. The other 90% uh, will talk about, about things that they have lost. Now, the problem with depression is you can't rely on the medical model's explanation of it. If you could, they wouldn't have just changed. That's what I always say about medicine. You know, the difference between medicine and the Bible is that the Bible doesn't change, does it? No, it's forever settled in heaven. The truth that Jesus spoke to us uh, when he walked the face of this earth will be true until he returns and straight on out into eternity. And so when the Bible says something, we can absolutely depend on it if we understand it. You know, sometimes people read things in the Bible and they simply don't understand it and, and they and they'll misinterpret it and end up in the wrong wrong place. But if you understand what the scripture says, it will always be true. Medicine, on the other hand, changes about every five minutes. I used to say every five years, but it, 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 the, 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 the cycle isn't that long anymore. And that's because, well, publishing doesn't take as long as it used to. Yeah. You buy a published medicine textbook, one of those thick ones. It used to be Cecil and Lurb. I don't know what they, then I think it was Beeson's medicine textbook. We used to call it the Bible, except it wasn't as interesting as the Bible. It wasn't as interesting as reading Deuteronomy. Uh, it, 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 but by the time the ink dries on the page, the book is out of date. I, I get most of my information about medicine from a, a, a news um, aggregating service for medicine called Up to Date. And what it does is it, you can put any subject in up-to-date you want to in the search, and it will give you the last six months of the current research, you know, which is really an, an amazing advantage over where we were in 1975. So you cannot exactly rely on, on the medical description or, or their explanation. Currently, uh, depression is diagnosed by using the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, currently in its fifth revision. Um, from now on, when I, I encounter that whole sentence worth of words, we're just going to say the DSM. Uh, the problem with the DSM is that it does not account for the origin of depression. It only lists symptoms. It is reliable in the sense that, you know, if you say that a person who is depressed has these following ten things... And then you ask the person if they have them and you declare that they're depressed, then it, it is reliable in that sense. Unfortunately, it cannot be validated. As uh, one fellow said about psychiatry, we have no laboratory tests. That may be changing to some extent. 
which is a good thing. I, I was teaching in Brazil this past week, and last, yeah, last week, and someone in Portuguese asked me, well, what if medicine discovers what the cause of depression is? And, you know, won't that just change everything you think? And I smiled and said, no. Uh, the, what it will do, though, is cut down on all the, um, all the extra misdiagnosing of depression that goes on in the United States today. Uh, you know, I, 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 as you will find out, I believe that 90% of everybody who gets labeled depressed with depression is, are merely sad over loss. They are grieving a loss of some sort. And if you ask them, they will be able to tell you what that is. That leaves 10%, and part of that 10%, maybe 5%, will people who have uh, known diseases, which will have a secondary effect on a person's mood. And then I think maybe there are 3 to 5% of people who have a difficulty that results in them having a sad mood. And those people, maybe what current research is, is talking with or are, are dealing about. Eve, of course, didn't have a disease. Eve just simply had a humongous loss. You know, her, as one political candidate says, it's huge or huge or something like that. Um, her losses were significant and, and easily, easily discerned. The problem, of course, with the way we diagnose depression today is that anyone who has a loss of any significance can develop the symptoms that get listed for depression and meet the criteria, which only requires you to be sad significantly for two weeks. And those, are the, and those kind of things are a sad mood, diminished interest in things that you used to enjoy. And these are the published DSM uh, criteria. You don't need to write them down. You can find them on the internet. Um, significant weight loss or weight gain, uh, insomnia, you know, the early morning waking that I started out talking about, or sleeping too much. Um, what they call psychomotor agitation, being irritable, uh, fatigue or loss of energy, feelings of worthlessness, um, diminished ability to think, recurrent thoughts of death or even suicide. Um, those, in order to meet, meet those criteria, it, it is not hard if you are grieving over a loss, and it can last longer than the two weeks required in order to make the diagnosis, which is why a good number of people will think they are depressed when maybe they are simply sad. Now, what is scientific research telling us about this? Well, uh, a good resource, there are a couple of really good resources about what I've just said. One is my book. I'm, I'm not, I, it, it is not shameless self-promotion. As a good friend of mine, Elise Fitzpatrick, told me, you will not retire on the money that you make from writing books. It's not going to happen unless you're John Grisham, who's doing rather well. Um, but I bet he gets more than 50 cents a copy. Why do you want to bet? Anyway, the, um, um, the, my book has a, a bibliography, and the bibliography, I think, is worth the, uh, is worth the price of the book. Uh, and in it, it documents uh, research that uh, says that 90% of the people who are labeled with depression have an identifiable source for their loss, and are grieving. Uh, another good book, which I quote at length in my book, is The Loss of Sadness, and it's by, by Alan Horowitz and Jerome Wakefield. And I footnote it, and it's, you can find it in the footnotes. But uh, they, they, it's 350 pages worth of documentation about how, how people can get sad and get, and get diagnosed with depression when all they have is um, sadness over, over loss. 
The, um, uh, beyond that, uh, it's important to note uh, that in 2010, a, a Journal of the American Medical Association article talking about the current crop of antidepressants, the popular ones, the SSRI antidepressants, the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, uh, looked at the effectiveness of those drugs. Um, and what they found was that if you compared uh, in people who were depressed, two groups, uh, those who took the drug and those who took a placebo, placebo being the pill that looks like but does not contain the active drug, what they found was that for those who are mildly depressed, moderately depressed, even those who are severely depressed, that there actually is no difference between that and the placebo. That, that people who are mildly, moderately, even severely depressed people um, will benefit from taking the placebo just as much as if they uh, took the active drug. It isn't until you get to the last 10%, the bottom, uh, you know, so what I've talked about is 90% twice here now, that should have rung a bell with you. The, uh, it, it isn't until you get to that last 10% that the drugs become statistically effective, and then the statistical effect is not large. It, it, it is rather small. Um, so, you know, and so those two numbers are important. 90% of people are sad over loss. They do not have a medical disease. Um, and 90% of the people who take the medicine don't really benefit very much. And so what could we conclude from that? Well, if you take, and take a medicine that is aimed at helping people who have a disease, an actual disease called depression, and you give them uh, um, a, a, who are simply sad over loss and you give them that drug, what are you going to have? People who are still sad over their loss and people who have side effects. Um, that, you know, basically that's what it, what it turns out to be. Now understand this, doing nothing about depression is not, doing nothing about sadness <clears throat> is not a workable strategy. All right? What our current recommendations are, uh, which the guy that I was reading at 5 o'clock in the morning doesn't know because he hasn't read up to date, uh, what the current recommendations are is that for 80% of people who show up in a doctor's office who are depressed, that if, if, they, if, if they go see a person who can just talk to them about it and who has some skill in talking to them, and of course this is secular, so it, it doesn't matter to them who they talk to. It's just go talk to somebody who knows something about depression. Um, uh, they will do, in the short run, they will do just as well as people who go take medicine. In the long run, they'll do better. And why should that surprise us? Why should that statistic surprise us at all? Well, in, in, the, in the process of talking to the individual, they may figure out what it is that's bothering them and actually do something about it. So uh, current recommendations are that uh, we, as family physicians and, and general, general medicine physicians, send people to talk to somebody. That's, that's what the current recommendation is. You can give them medicine, and most people will opt for that because talking to people in, in our society costs money and takes time. So I'd rather take a pill because that's a lot easier. Um, and, of course, they do get the placebo effect, I guess. So, but anyway, um, let's move on. You need to understand the depth of your counselee's suffering. It was important for me to listen to Eve for a long time, and we'll talk about this in, in the later lecture. Um, the, uh, um, it is important to give that counselee, you know, that well, I always say, and I'll talk about it later, the first 30 minutes. Their suffering and their sadness are real. They re Eve really did lose something. You know, that, that she wasn't making her problem up. 
You need to ask questions to gain further insight about, that pro about the problem as you talk to them. Um, the, uh, you need to find out about their history of depression. Uh, for Eve, she had never had um, depression before. It reminds me of a, a young woman, uh, she was probably 17 years old, who came bounding into my office one day. And um, when I got to talk to her, she told me that she was, she was depressed that, and that her friends, who obviously were about 17 as well, had told her. And it's a remarkable st thing. You know, you're 17 years old, you have 17-year-old friends, and they're telling you to go to the doctor and get medicine for depression. You know, why is that? Well, you know, when I was 17 years old, I barely knew what depression was. I had no idea how it would be treated. And the reason why we know that is because millions of dollars have been spent to educate us to know that if you're sad, you need to go see a doctor and you need to take a pill. You know, you turn your television on and there are, are the commercials. And I think the particularly malignant ones right now are the ones for the anti atypical antipsychotics. Uh, you know, they are, they are as add-ons are being promoted to be sold to treat people with depression. Uh, those are significant drugs with significant side effects, major side effects. But anyway, the 17-year-old girl comes in and she tells me she's depressed. And being the curious sort of guy that I am, I, I said, well, when did this start? And she said, oh, about three weeks ago. Well, oh, that's interesting. What happened three weeks ago? I dumped my boyfriend. You know, and I thought for a moment, looked at her, thought, hmm, maybe you need a new haircut and a nice dress. You know, that, I'm just saying. <laughs> and when will her depression go away? Come on, when will her depression go away? When she gets the new boyfriend, yes. And she wasn't depressed. She did not have a disease. She had situational, normal sadness. Sadness that you're supposed to live through and, and work your way to the opposite side. So you ask questions about the history. Unlike the guy who I'm currently counseling who's been depressed for 40 years and couldn't tell you why or what started it. Uh, you know, he fits in a completely different category. I can tell you that the scriptures have helped him considerably. For the first year in his life, he didn't spend the winter depressed. Why? Because he had learned an unbiblical way to respond to his sad mood, which made everybody in the room and whoever knew him or had any contact with him very uncomfortable at times. And what we taught him was how to respond biblically to a chronic problem, a chronic medical problem. And he's done much better. So find out about their history. Find out about their family history. Uh, I am certain there are people who can tell, would tell me that, um, would come in and tell me that they, uh, you know, their parents were depressed, their grandparents were depressed, their great-grandparents were depressed. And, uh, you know, down through the years, I've by and large, responded to that saying, well, depressed people raised more people. And, how did, and what did they learn as they watched? You know, how do you respond to life? Well, you do respond in a depressed way. Now, I, and, I, and I think in large measure that's true, and there's research to bear it out. A research study that was done that looked at uh, two groups, looked at the major group was people who had a really bad family history of depression. And what was their potential likelihood to be depressed? What the study separated the group out as was for those for whom spiritual things were important. That was the statement. It did not mean Christianity. It did not mean going to church or reading your Bible. They tried to sort that out and could not find a correlation. 
But they could find a correlation between those who thought spiritual things were important, whether it was going out and looking up at the full moon every month and humming, or to those who, you know, go to church uh, twice on Sunday and every Wednesday night and read their Bible three chapters a day and four on Sunday. It, it didn't matter what you did. What it mattered was whether spiritual things were important. And among the groups who thought that spiritual things were important, they were 90% less likely to have depression in their history than the group who did not think spiritual things were important. So, and the, the importance of that study isn't that if you think spiritual things are important, it insulates you against depression because I, I can't exactly say that that's true. But what it does say is that if your parents were depressed, it doesn't mean that you have to be. That's what was important in the study. It doesn't mean that you won't be. It doesn't mean exactly that you have to be. You're not doomed by your parents. <sighs> Yes, anyway, I always fear, didn't we always fear that we'd grow up and be like, yes, right? When we were young, it was, I'll grow up and be just like my parents. Family history, then find out what the challenges and difficulties are. What, what are the losses? The important thing that you can do in counseling is to find out if that individual can tell you what it was they lost and when they lost it, and then how they responded to it. That becomes the, the, the heart of what we can do for them in, in biblical counseling. What made those challenges devastating? Well, for Eve, it was everything that she was hoping to get done in life and didn't know if she would be able to. Then you would need to find out how they chose to respond to those challenges. Eve responded with anger, fear, worry, laziness, rebellion, and bitterness. Was Eve sinning when she dropped her lung? Well, you know, she might have been, but, but was dropping her lung a sin? Was being sick a sin? No, you know, some depression comes to us pretty normally. Something bad happens to us and we become sad. And that is a normal, built-in, God-given response to the adversities of life. But was Eve sinning after that? As fast as she could, yes. You know, she was, she was responding as badly and as... And as, as, as as energetically as one could. So how did they choose to respond? And then, uh, what changes did they make in the way that they handled challenges or difficulties? You know, did they quit doing everything that was important? You know, that, that, and that generally is a theme when it comes to depression. They quit doing everything that is important. And Eve had stopped doing the really important things. And when you stop doing things that you've done your whole life that are important to you, how do you feel about it? Even if you didn't lose anything. You know, if you have homework to get done, I always used to have this recurrent dream. Um, I, and I, it was probably because I spent so much of my life in school. And, I, and I'd go back tomorrow if I could. I, you know, my wife says, I'm just a professional student. And someday I will. Anyway. But I used to have this recurrent dream that I would wake up in the morning and it would, the semester was over and I had not gone to class. Yes. And it was the day that I was supposed to turn in the big paper and it was the final. Anybody else have that dream? Oh, yes. Students. Yes. Students. Something, it's probably connected to post-traumatic stress in some way, shape, or form. Yes. Well, I mean, if you, if you knew you had work to get done and you were lazing about it, you, you would feel bad, wouldn't you? Most of us would. Some of us wouldn't, but most of us would. So how did they change how they dealt with it? What is the role of the Lord in their life? Are they saved or unsaved? Biblical counseling is aimed at saved people, isn't it? 
I, I can't tell people that if they'll do what the Bible says, that, they'll, that things will get different or better in their lives if they're unsaved. I can't tell them that. I don't, know what God, I don't know what God's doing in their life. Maybe the reason why things aren't going so well for them is because they need to know what the gospel is. I do counsel unsaved people. I will. I'll counsel them as long as they do the homework and, um, and as long as they can tolerate me telling them about the gospel every time they come in. And little bits and pieces, you know, that's, you know, it's not, it's biblical counseling evangelism. You know, that's, that's what it becomes. And I'll talk to them as long as they'll come back and as long as they'll do the homework. Then you also need to know if they view, what their view of God is and their problem. Do they view God as sovereign and that they're good with what he allows to come into their lives? Or do they, are they blaming God for what's happened? God, if you loved me, it's like, uh, we'll talk about it. Later about uh, Martha and Mary and Lazarus. Lord, where were you when we needed you? That you know, that's Martha and Mary. Um, do they have that attitude, or do they think that God's just uninvolved? You know that He really doesn't have anything much to do with what's going on. You need to know that. You also need to know what the authority of Scripture is in their life. You know, do they believe that if the Bible tells them something, they should do it or not, or not, or they just think it's to be culturally as uh, I run into. Young, young people, I won't describe them as millennials, it's, it's kind of unkind in a way, um, brings up that image of being 35 years old in your parents' basement, uh, playing computer games or something like that. But you, um, the, um, oh man, now I forgot where I was going with that. Yes, the authority of Scripture. Do you believe that, as one of them recently told me who was committing a major, one of the big ten sins, is that uh, the Scripture is to be culturally interpreted? You know, that means do as you please, that, you know, and, 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 and then try to find a verse that, that substantiates it. I'll, I will live in open rebellion against God and uh, committing homosexual adultery or heterosexual fornication. And um, I'll, I'll go by that uh, verse that says love one another. You know, I'll just take that out of context and, and that's going to be my mantra. Then it becomes a little bit later. What was that song? The, was it the Eagles? Love the one you're with? You have to be old to remember this. <laughs> yeah, it was amazing music, but I wouldn't recommend the, uh, the philosophy in the, song, in the words. So what's the role of the Lord in, in, in their life? You need to allow them to express their frustrations and fears and worries and disappointments. Um, why? Because, well, look, look at what David said in the Psalms. How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? This is probably when he was out there running ahead of Saul, you know, how long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, have sorrow in my heart all the day long? How long will my enemy be uh, exalted over me? Thank you. The slide doesn't... Yeah, it doesn't make it. <sighs> now, as you counsel people who struggle like this, you need to be patient. Um, counseling may t- require a slower pace as people think slower when they are sad and wound up inside themselves. Um, might require, require more prayer in the counseling room than normal. Um, a, a good friend of mine, uh, Dan Wickert, uh, uh, said, and I think it's a really good hint, that after you find out whether they're uh, scared of talking in public or if they pray and, and they're willing to pray out loud, let them pray to open the session and then listen. Listen carefully. Listen to what they pray about. Listen to what they're praying for. It may give you a clue as to what's going on in their life. You need to encourage them with hopeful passages, scriptures which give hope. 
Like Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. And Psalm 42, why are you in despair, O my soul? Why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. So you need to, you need to point them toward those passages. These are not prescriptive in a sense. I mean, we're not talking about giving people a Bible verse, telling them to go to church three times a week, uh, read, you know, three chapters a day and four on Sunday, although I do eventually get around to telling people that. Uh, I, and I, I was just talking to a fellow who told me he was spiritually empty. I asked him what he's reading and he, out of the Bible, and he said, uh, oh, well, I read a couple of verses a day. <laughs> And I smiled and said, well, if you're empty, you need to fill your tank, sir. And, and I told him, start reading two chapters in the Old Testament and two in the New. And then I told him to go buy Ryrie's Basic Theology, Needs of Theology. Um, so so uh, verses are not prescriptive, but studying Scripture is needed. Then you need to demonstrate to them the hope and help found in one's relationship to Christ. You need to explain to them that for most people, depression is not something that merely happened to them. They weren't just walking down through life and suddenly became depressed. Eve didn't. It's, um, it's a lot like blue ice. Depression is not like blue ice. Anybody in here know what blue ice is? Nobody. Do you want to know? Or I can just move on. Anyway, um, blue ice is a phenomenon. There was a fellow sitting in his family room in Sacramento, California on a given day and minding his own business watching television when a 150-pound block of blue ice came screaming through his roof, came through his ceiling, hit him right smack dab in the middle of his recliner and drove him into the basement. I've had people ask me if it hurt. No, it just squashed him, (laughs) that's all. And you wonder, where did that 150-pound block of blue ice come from? You ever fly on an airplane and go to the bathroom? What color is the water? Come on, what color is the water in the bathroom on an airplane? Blue, yes, blue. Now we're getting closer, aren't we? And there's a port on the side of the airplane when it lands because, you know, that the, all that stuff that goes in the toilet on an airplane doesn't, mis, doesn't mysteriously disappear. And they open it up and they drain it. And occasionally when they close it, it doesn't seat right, the seal. And it will leak just a little. It doesn't have to leak a lot, just a little. And when you get to 30,000 feet, you know, the reason why people don't do well when airplanes decompress is because it's 50 below outside. It takes very little time to freeze you at 50 below. So as the blue water drips off the side of the plane, it freezes right to the side of the plane. And it just keeps coming out and coming out. And the, the patch gets bigger and bigger and bigger until the surface tension that's holding it to the side of the airplane can't resist the wind any longer and then it blows it off the side of the plane and it can weigh up to 100 150 pounds just depends on how much it leaked and how long it was up there most of the time it matters not why why doesn't it matter much because you're flying over the united states and guess what unless you live in new york or california this is a big country and it's not very densely populated the only people who think we have a population problem in the united states live within five miles of the coast which is where about 85% of the U.S. population lives. So, you know, you can drop a 150-pound block of ice in the middle of Nebraska, and nobody but the gophers have a problem with it, right? Unless you just happen to be in Sacramento sitting in your easy chair. Depression is not like that. 
for the vast majority of people. Actually, it's not like that for anybody. Um, there, if you get an adequate history, you will find out what it was that happened to them in 90 to 95% of the cases that you talk to who, who, with whom you counsel. And what, is it, what does the process look like? Well, you have these outside events. For Eve, it was that medical emergency. For other people, it may be the loss of a, a loved one, loss of a job, uh, loss of status, uh, maybe your church split and half your friends left, um, any number of things which can cause you to feel like all those, that list of problems that, you, that I read to you that describe depression, all those things. It can, it, loss can do that for you. We take that loss and then we interpret it according to our own belief system. And, you know, most people today honestly view themselves as victims, don't they? I mean, that's just the way people think in our country. And then... That thought process leads to a sad mood, which gets labeled as depression, depending on who you talk to about it. If you're going to help people like this, you need to connect them where solutions are found in the scriptures. Yes, the solutions can be found in the scriptures. I, I just gave a lecture uh, on uh, last Monday, not this past Monday, but the Monday before at the ACBC conference about the sufficiency of scripture and medicine and how they interact. And one of the statements that I I made and that I mean is that whenever Jesus chooses, whenever God chooses to intervene in a medical issue in the life of an individual, he will be vastly superior than doctors and he will be entirely sufficient for the problem. You read that all the way through scripture. And then if you're willing to make a logical leap and say that God is entirely identified with his word, he is. You know, in the beginning was the word and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. If, if, if you're willing to make that logical leap, whenever the scriptures speak of a medical issue, the, the answer they will offer will be superior and entirely, entirely sufficient. So yes, for those who are sad over loss, where would we go to help them? Well, we wouldn't go to the Reader's Digest, would we? used to like to read the Reader's Digest anymore. It's, well, they just, they just don't have as interesting articles as they used to. I still like word power, you know, because I, I, I can usually get a 90. <laughs> it's just, just from reading for long periods of time. So you connect them with passages that give them hope, hope that they can handle life in a biblical fashion. What does the scripture tell us? That there is no test in life, no problem that we're ever going to face that, that God that isn't common to all men and that God intends to take us as believers through it with his enablement. That's, that's what 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says. The test question is, is how are you going to act? How are you going to live? Are you going to act like the Bible says a believer ought to act? Are, and are you going to respond that way? Or are you going to act like the neighbors? Respond as any unsaved individual in the world might. And, 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 and it says in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that God will not test us beyond what we're able by the power of the Holy Spirit that lives inside of us and by the grace of God that he gives us. He will not test us beyond what we are able to respond in a way that will glorify and honor him, which is always the key. The, the key to getting out of depression is purpose. Always keep that in mind. And the purpose for us as believers is to do what? Glorify God, yes. 
Then, the Bible tells us that God, if God intends for us to, to uh, do, if, if he gives us commands in scripture, which he does, uh, then he will enable us to do them. God does not command us to do things our, 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 and that he will not make us able to do. I didn't say that he will not command us things that we on our own might not be able to do. I'm, I'm saying that what he asks us to do in scripture, he will enable us to do. And then they need to see uh, from Romans 8 that, um, that we'll never be alone uh, in facing it. There is no trial, as Paul tells us in Romans 8, um, 31 through 35. What shall separate us from the love of God? The answer is nothing. You know, there's no trial that we're ever going to face alone uh, or on our own. There are a couple of good examples in the Bible of individuals who struggled with um, sadness. Uh, in Genesis 4, Cain is, is, is a good example. Cain made his offering and it was refused because it was not proper. He offered vegetables when he should have offered up a lamb. Cain became angry over it. He was reproved by God and, and told what to do and, and refused. He rebelled. And that rebellion led to bitterness and stubbornness and anger. And then eventually his anger led to sin and, and, he, and he killed his brother. Uh, what is remarkable to me in the account of when God talked to Cain about it was that, was, was that his complete lack of concern over the fact that he'd never see or talk to his brother again. That is breathtaking. The only thing he was worried about was he wasn't going to be able to bear up under the punishment that he would have to have because of what he had done. Um, as far as we know, Cain went on through the rest of his life as an unregenerate, unbelieving, unhappy, sad person. There's nothing in scripture that says anything different. Another example is Elijah, who got to where he got by being fearful. You remember the story where Elijah has the contest between the prophets of Baal and, and um, you know, God sends down fire and burns up Elijah's offering. Nothing, of course, happens to the offering of the Baal prophets. And then after that, Elijah and his friends kill all 450 of the prophets of Baal. Quite a bit of work to do before dinner time. Um, okay. <laughs> you guys, yeah, yeah, now you're awake. Good. Glad to, glad to see you're with me still. Um, the, um, and what happens? Um, while they're cleaning up the mess, uh, Jezebel sends down word, um, because those were Jezebel's hired prophets, that, you know... It, that by tomorrow you're going to be just like one of my prophets. Uh, you know, I bet you Jezebel didn't weigh more than 110 pounds. What do you want to bet? That, that's, that's what I would bet. And you, you would think after a guy had just prayed down fire from heaven and killed 450 prophets of Baal that he would have stood up on his hind legs like John Wayne would in a bar fight and say, bring it on, little sister, or something like that. Anyway, <laughs> but what did he do? He ran. <laughs> I mean, it is inexplicable. The man turns and runs. He becomes the first ultramarathoner, I think. He said he ran 40 days right into the wilderness, didn't he? And we see God dealing, dealing with him, sending help, eventually meeting him in the cave and asking him, what are you here for? You know, why are you here? And he gives out that, plaint, that complaint about, you know, I'm the only one left and they want to kill me. And God assures him that he's entirely wrong, that there are 7,000 people who have not bowed their knee to Baal. And by the way, would you go back to work? That's exactly what he tells Elijah. Sends him back to work, gives him purpose. Why did Elijah not spend the rest of his life depressed? Well, because Elijah repented. Yes, so would Eve, but Cain didn't. 
So it looks like this. That's how you get in. You start off with your sad thoughts over what you've lost and gradually quit things that you know you should, and eventually you're down in the pit. It looks like a toilet bowl, doesn't it? Yes, and you're, and you're swirling around the edge down towards the drain. That's, and at the bottom is where Eve and Elijah and Cain all were. But, and then how do you get out? Well, you repent. You change your mind. You change your thinking. And you change what you're doing. And that's what Elijah did. And that's what Eve eventually would do. You need to encourage your counselee to think like Christ and be empowered like Christ. And how, and how would you, and where would you take them to do that? Well, they need to think right thoughts about God and sin and about themselves. And the first is they... They need to understand that their, their current sinful response, which was where Eve was at the time, is holding them in slavery. Um, you know, uh, Paul tells us in Romans 6 that we are dead to sin, but, but he also tells us in verse 16, Know ye not that to whom you yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants you are, whether of sin unto death or obedience unto righteousness. Speaking to believers, he said, you get to choose. And you can either choose an unbiblical response to the struggle that you're in, or you can choose to respond in a, in a biblical, godly way. And so I told Eve that. You get a choice. And that is the difference between believers and non-believers when it comes to any and all problems in life. We get to choose to respond in a way that glorifies God, and they don't have that choice. They just don't. Then... They need to understand that their sin, whatever sin that they have been doing, one, they need to abandon it, and two, it does not come to characterize the rest of their life. I always say that I have nothing adverse to say about Alcoholics Anonymous in public, but I do have disagreements with them. The reason why I don't have anything adverse to say about them is I have cousins who are alumni. You know, they, uh, yes, and they benefited. You know, in spite of everything I might disagree with them about, they have benefited um, and, they, and they are not uh, currently uh, addicts. The thing that I object most to, though, aside from telling people that they can believe in their coffee cup as their higher power if they wish, um, is that you have to get up at every meeting and say, Hi, I'm Charlie. I'm a, an addict. And they spend the rest of their life going to meetings and getting up and telling people that they are an addict. And it's always that assumption that they are. What does Paul say about it? He lists drunkenness in, in his great uh, list of, uh, of big sins in that verse. And then he says, and such were some of you. Were. Doesn't say such are some of you. Believers do not have to spend the rest of their lives explaining or being identified by the sin that they committed great hope. Then uh, you need to encourage your counselee to think on, on things that are true, honorable, right, etc. But mostly I think it's what's important about that is true. And, and, and the statement I make to counselees is that, you know, you're sitting here worrying about dying, but have you? You know, it, if, you know for Eve, she, she wasn't in the least bit sick when I would see her. And and I said, well, it hasn't happened, has it? Is it then true? Should you spend all your life ruminating on it? Yeah, should you spend the rest of your life worrying about the day you're going to die? We all could do that because there is going to be a day when all of us die, isn't there? Absolutely. But you should be thinking on other things. 
things which are absolutely true. Then they need to think about gratitude. They need to be grateful. Always, as, as Paul would say in Ephesians 5, 21, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God the, excuse me, to God the Father. Um, uh, by and large, uh, people who are depressed are not concentrating on being thankful for the things that they currently have. They aren't. And a good place, a good resource is uh, Nancy Lee DeMoss, wrote, not DeMoss anymore, but, uh, and I don't know what her last name is, but at any rate, you'll, you can uh, find that book either in your resource center or on Amazon, and it's Choosing Gratitude. It's, it's a very good book for people who are struggling. And in it, it's a great sentence, and it's hard for people who are struggling sometimes to hear, but it is absolutely true. You have two choices in life, she said. You can either whine or you can worship, one or the other. But you can't do both. And you should choose what? Worship. Yes, choose to glorify God with your life, no matter what the circumstance is. Need to, preach the go- need to teach people to preach the gospel to themselves. Uh, a good resource for that uh, is uh, the Gospel Primer by Vincent. I'm certain your resource center has it here. If you haven't bought it and read it, you should. I do it. And when do I do it? In the morning. I, I tell people I can get up in the morning and I can remember just about every stupid thing I've ever done in my life. I can. I don't know about you, but I can. And I know that since God has forgiven me for all those things, that there's only one being in the universe who has any interest at all in reminding me of them. Yeah, who would that be? Satan? Like the church lady. I can't do that very well. Yes. And so you know how I combat that. You know how I preach the gospel to myself. When I start thinking about those things, I remember that they happened a long, long time ago, and I start out with Romans 8.1. Yeah, it's a great verse to end counseling with. There is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And I say that over and over again until the devil decides that there's no point in talking to me about the stupid things I've done in the past. Why? Because I am fully aware that when God looks at me, he is not remembering the stupid things I've done in the past. He sees what his son did for me on Calvary. That's what he sees. Ah, So preach the gospel. Seek to perform tasks even though... It, it's hard. Yes, I, eventually what you do with depressed people is send them back to do all the things that they quit doing, that they needed to be doing on a daily basis, as Paul would say, the things you've learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things. And as Jesus would say, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Take up his cross daily. Uh, you know, I think probably most people get sad over losses in life because they don't anticipate them and they don't think that they should have them and they don't think that they're fair. And I like what C.S. Lewis said about that verse. He, he said, when you read that verse, what part of it didn't you understand that there was going to be suffering? Yes, when Jesus calls us and says to take up a cross, that means that we're going to have difficult times in life. And the difference between us and the rest of the world will be how we respond and the Savior that we have who enables us to respond in a way that honors and glorifies him. As I said, most depressed individuals quit doing all the normal things that they need to do. And that's what puts the damper on their mood. And what you have to do gradually is return them to all those things. And that's what we did with Eve. You don't return them to everything day one. You know, start with one or two, all right? Like the guy who showed up in my office whose wife had left him. Uh, this has probably been 20 years ago. And um, it, was a, it, was in a, it was a doctor's office visit, and he was sad. 
And, you know, I, I listened to his story, and when it got time to do his physical exam, I noted he probably hadn't changed his underwear in a really long time, you know. And you know what I did for him? I said, look, your wife left you. That is true. But your life is going on. Your first assignment is to go home and take a shower and change your clothes and come back tomorrow, and we'll talk about it. And that's what I did. I gradually sent him home to do everything that he'd stopped doing. You know, that is important. And that was just for a guy that I don't know if he was saved or not, you know, but it helped him immeasurably for someone to grab him by the ears and yank his head up and say, you know, you're going to drown if you stay where you're at, but you don't have to stay there. And as a biblical counselor, we have the privilege of doing that, except we have the scriptures to encourage and to reinforce what we're telling these folks. So we returned to Eve. Homework assignments for Eve include, uh, included getting 80 hours of sleep, going home and taking her shower. Yes, cleaning up her room a little bit at a time over probably 12 weeks, doing her part of the housework, being responsible um, with regard to um, the, her schooling. She had to go back to class. She had to do her homework. She had to study, and she rescued her semester, at least the one she was in at the time. Um, she had to recur, return to other normal act, day, daily activities. The ones that we started with first, of course, were need to read your Bible. Um, I, I always start out with one chapter a day, and I start in the Gospel of John. And the reason why I start in the Gospel of John is because it's my favorite book in the Bible. Why? Because I got saved reading it, and it has all the good stories. You know, it is, it is one story after another that illustrates how God loves us and what he did for us and what he intends to do with us for the rest, rest of our lives. But shortly, it won't be long until it's three chapters a day and four on Sunday. Uh, reason being is because if you do that, what happens? You get through the Bible in a year. And if you do that for 25 years, you know something. Christianity is the only pursuit I know of where people wander around in it thinking that they don't have to study once they become a part of it. Yeah, that's right. Yes, you need to read. If you don't read your Bible, you won't have any bullets in your gun when the, when the war shows up, will you? No, you'll have absolutely nothing and no idea how to respond to it. So I, I don't tell people to read three chapters a day on four on Sunday on the first day of counseling, but when they leave at the end of 12 weeks, that's one of, their, one of my parting assignments. Um, <clears throat> they need to return to their Bible study, their prayer, uh, they need to be invested in a small group. They need to start memorizing scripture. You ought to be giving people a verse to memorize once a week, and it ought to be a verse that applies to their problem, you know, something that will help them. My first one usually is 2 Corinthians 5, 9. You could have guessed that. Uh, then they need to be back in church, uh, um, in fellowship uh, with, with those who are around them. And then social engagements. As I told one physician who was... Who, uh, whose wife called me one day and told me to come help her quick. Um, um, I, I told him he had, if somebody called him and wanted to go someplace, he had to go. Unless he had a fever or he was vomiting. And he understood what I meant. You know, if you're not running a fever and you're not vomiting and they want you to go someplace and do something, you go. Uh, because he was, you know, holed up in his house going nowhere. You need to explain their purpose in life. What's your purpose in life? Your purpose is to glorify God. Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, 9 it's to grow. Romans eight twenty eight and 29. Adversity is meant to grow us in Christ. And then their other final purpose or another purpose is to bear fruit. Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, meekness, faith, 
temperance. Against such there is no law. You need to demonstrate biblically how their sin may have contributed to their depression. Uh, things, sins that contribute to sad moods include fear. Um, and in its place, in its place of fear, you need to help them to develop trust. You know, the, the, the biblical antithesis to being afraid all the time is trusting God even if he kills you. Yes, that's what Job said, wasn't it? In the middle of his suffering, if he kills me, I know one day I'll stand before him and I'll see my Savior. In this body, I'll see him. So they need to develop trust. When I'm afraid, I will trust you. Uh, anger needs to be dealt with in a biblical way, not an unbiblical way. I think the definitive book written on anger in our lifetime is Robert E. Jones. Uh, uprooting anger. I commend it to your attention. If you don't own it and haven't read it, you should buy it and read it. Um, dealing with anger in a biblical way. Worry, uh, as with e- Elijah, uh, can uh, is is a doorway into is a doorway into depression. I generally deal with people with regard to worry out of Philippians four. I obviously do not have time to tell you how. Uh, I think there's a lecture in this uh, sec- uh, in these sessions about worry. It becomes a vitally important thing for counselees not to think about their problems all day, every day. And in fact, we are commanded not to do it, aren't we? Yes. The, the Matthew 6, do not worry, that's an imperative. It is not a suggestion. It is not a good idea. It is the Savior telling you what not to do. And that's... That's encouraging. Why? Because if the Savior tells you not to do something, guess what the Savior is going to do? Make you able not to do it. That's right. Grief over loss. The great source, as far as I'm concerned, in the United States today is sorrow over losing things. Uh, I, I, you know, a good book uh, written by your pastor, Gospel Treason, um, or the pastor here. I don't know if it's your pastor <laughs> individually or not, but uh, a, good, a good resource to deal with... Uh, Loss, guilt, sin unconfessed uh, leads to sadness. Uh, that you, you cannot carry that burden along, uh, you know, but you can find forgiveness. First John 1, 9, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And why would you want to carry it with you? Uh, sometimes the reason why people are sad is because they're currently actively living in sin. And the fact that the Holy Spirit is living inside their heart, kicking from the inside out, making them miserable, would indeed make them sad. A guilt, a, a good resource is uh, dealing with your past. Uh, I think it's dealing with your past. Or putting your past in its place by Byers, Steve Byers. When a person can't shake an event, this is it, uh, from the past. That's Byers' book. Um, uh, you know the long and the short is uh, Philippians 3 uh, uh, forgetting the things which are behind looking to those things which are are forward living in the past generally means you're ruminating about things that have happened to you prior when a counselee comes to the conclusion that they won't attain their life goals used to be in the 1950s 50 year old men would get depressed because they knew that they were 50 they might drop dead when they were 65 in the 1950s they were working at a job that they probably were not going to move on from and they would be sad because they'd achieved everything that they were going to achieve in life what's the cure for that it's 2 Corinthians 5 9 yeah if you're sad because you haven't made the goal that you had in life you need a new goal you know your, your goal needs to become unabashedly glorifying God with your life and then 
Common questions regarding depression. Is the goal to help depressed patients feel better? And the answer is absolutely not. The goal in all counseling, we are goal-oriented in counseling, not problem-oriented. How you feel is a problem. Um, the, the goal instead is to glorify God no matter, no matter how I feel. Now, I'll tell you, if, we'll talk more about it, but if you, uh, as Jesus said, um, now that you know these things, happy are you if you do them. And John uh, uh, 13, 17. Yes, I think it's John 13, 17. Um, individuals who find their way into God's purpose for their life, we'll talk more about it later, uh, yes, um, even if you are ill, there is joy in serving Jesus. The same kind of joy that Jesus had when he was he- heading to the cross, as the writer of Hebrews would tell us. So the goal isn't for them to feel better. Their goal is for them to glorify God. Is chemical imbalance cause of the depression? Well, no, not anybody in science believes this anymore. Um, I'll talk about that more in another lecture. Should a person, how should a person decide whether to take antidepressants given the risk and benefits? The teaser answer to that, which I will uh, spend more time on later, is that it's a Romans 14 issue. You can think about that until I lecture again. And then how should we respond if a depressed person threatens suicide? Um, uh, the answer to that is, and unless you can do 24-7 uh, care for someone, that means somebody who is capable of restraining an individual who can stay awake 24 hours, 7 days a week, you need to take them for health care. Uh, that probably, in most situations, means to the emergency room. If someone has an active plan to kill themselves, they need to be someplace where they can be safe until they're thinking differently. So always keep that in mind. I had an individual who was talking about it in the past week. Um, uh, you know, as, as I talked with him, and uh, you know, I found he did not have an active plan, so I gave him my phone number, told him, you know, if you start thinking about this again, you promise me you'll call. And he did. And he called me this week, but to talk about something else, when I got his phone call, I was going, oh dear. But, um, but then he wanted to talk about something entirely different. You all, probably most of you at the level that you are in counseling, if someone's telling you that they want to kill themselves, you probably ought to be getting the family into the room and getting them to some place where they can be assessed. That, you know, that, that would be what I would say.